Hello, and welcome to a new episode of So Important, the Interview Podcast. Our guest today is Daniel Webster, Bloomberg Professor of American Health at Johns Hopkins University, where he directs the Center for Gun Violence Prevention and Policy. Mr. Webster is one of the nation's leading authorities on gun violence. He has published extensively on the topic in all of its aspects. His work has informed policies to reduce gun violence at the local, state, and federal levels. He has won numerous awards for his groundbreaking work focused on how we can address the gun epidemic in this country with a focus on how we can think of and address the problem from a public health perspective. His full biography is in the show notes. I can tell you that I hadn't personally thought much about gun violence in terms of public health per se, but after hearing Mr. Webster speak on the subject, I realized that this was a topic that was most certainly of great importance and very much worth learning more about and sharing. So I am honored to have Daniel with me this morning to talk about a way of thinking about and addressing gun violence in this country and indeed on a larger scale as well. And I am looking forward to hearing from one of the leading experts on this topic. So with that, Daniel, I'd like to welcome you to the show and tell you how happy I am to have this opportunity to talk. It's great to be with you, Monty. Great. And what I want to do is to just jump right in. And before we delve deeply into the topic, let's let's go back in time a bit. And perhaps you can briefly tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, how you came to dedicate your life's work to this topic in the center that you direct. Sure. I I grew up in a small town in Kentucky, Carrollton, Kentucky. Gun violence was not a huge uh, problem in our community, um, except I think probably for suicides. But my father was the town mayor, uh, which gives you a very unique vantage point in thinking about problems, not just as individual problems, but as community problems and how do you solve them. One of my first jobs after I got my bachelor's degree in psychology was as a social worker in a nearby county, a very low income challenge type of community. And most of the work that I did focused on child maltreatment, uh, family violence, juvenile violence. The very first week on the job investigating a, a case of child abuse, I was threatened with a gun trying to do my job to protect children. That by itself did not direct me towards my work, but it was a very challenging line of work to do, particularly when you're in your early 20s and you don't have a lot of your own life experience to help people in very challenging circumstances. I shared a building with the local health department and um, I found that the local health department was an incredible asset to me to try to help the families who um really were struggling, uh, struggling with substance abuse, mental health uh, problems, all kinds of things. But it really opened my eyes to really start to think about the problems I was interested in, in new ways. I then started studying public health first at University of Michigan, and then I went on to get a doctoral degree at Johns Hopkins. And, And at that time, actually, my orientation still was not exclusively on gun violence. I was, I was really, um, drawn to public health policy broadly, which whether we're talking about motor vehicle uh, traffic problems, alcohol problems, the idea that the policies that we adopt really determine literally life and death, uh, the rates at which people die and how soon and by what means. And, and so I came to Johns Hopkins to study that during the late 80s and early 90s. And during that time was an epidemic of gun violence, much like we're experiencing right now. 
And the School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins was, um, and, and still is, of course, in uh, East Baltimore community that had many of the struggles of where the problems were concentrated. So it was through that experience and, and thinking about the public health of the population of Baltimore City, it was very clear that it was going to be hard to make progress on any public health problem when your day-to-day existence in those communities revolved around, can you survive gun violence? Are you going to meet a gun uh, as you turn the corner on your daily walk or whatever? So that is really what brought me to the issue and and really up close and and personal and seeing young people die of gun violence at just uh, an, an incredible rate. So that, that's basically what drew me to address this problem and to address it as a public health problem. That's an amazing story. And you direct a center focused on, on this topic. Yes, our center uh, was actually the first of its type established 26 years ago. Um, an academic center is focused very specifically on the problem of gun violence and what to do about it. We're very applied and, and, and practical. I mean, public health can be hard to wrap your head around, really, honestly, if you're not in it to understand what it means. But in its most simple form, it is a problem-solving enterprise. It's incredibly practical. So the work we've done uh, at our center is always zeroed in on solving problems, looking at the problem of gun violence. How can we apply the best science and public health principles to address this problem? That's a good segue to my next question, because it kind of gets to it. Why don't you expand a little bit on what it really means to address gun violence from the perspective of public health and also how that may differ from or perhaps more accurately complement other perhaps more familiar perspectives and approaches? That's a great question. First, I'll acknowledge, Monty, that public health is an incredibly broad field. And so uh, within my school or or broadly within my field, there are people working on this issue and, and they tackle it slightly differently and have slightly different perspectives. But I think the most when, it, when you think about it in the most fundamental way, the, the unique thing that public health brings is a population lens. Uh, we tend to think of a problem like gun violence in very individual ways. Someone committed some horrific act of gun violence, and our, our orientation is, well, we need a system of justice to bring those people to justice. And, and typically, we viewed this problem as a bad person problem, and uh, we've relied upon police and prisons as our principal and almost exclusive solution to it. Public health looks at it very differently. Yes, of course, there are individual issues going on. We have to have individual accountability. Public health relies upon laws of all kinds of laws to, to maintain public health and safety. But in addition to that, our orientation really is how do you create conditions in which people can be healthy and safe? And that is our orientation. And one of the things, of course, our center is focused on is is our gun policies. How do we regulate the uh, uh, manufacture, sale, possession, carrying of firearms? That's not the only public policy that is relevant to thinking about the conditions that drive gun violence, but it's an an important one. We also think about alcohol and drug policy and housing policy as well. And much violence really boils down to, uh, aside from sort of the gun part of it, concentrated disadvantage that has been built into our society as a result of very specific public policies that 
uh, were designed to advantage some people and disadvantage others. So it's not something that would be in place of other approaches, but it's something that can have a very complementary aspect to it. Yes, I've always viewed public health as a complement to law enforcement and criminal justice. I actually work very closely with law enforcement and criminal justice. I do think those are important pieces of, in essence, tools that we can use to solve this problem. But I think we've gone about it in the wrong way. We have over-relied on broad, frankly, racially discriminatory practices of stop and search searching people mostly based upon where they live and what they look like, as opposed to what the science really tells us, which is even in communities where gun violence is the most common, where the rates are the highest, it's a very small number of individuals really driving this problem. And to really approach this in an equitable and effective way so that you minimize these racial biases is it, it's a hyper-focused risk orientation to this. And there are a number of public health problems where certain individuals drive a contagious process. You know, you, you can think of someone who's shedding virus uh, and not being safe, right, uh, at, at a very high rate. They can spin off a, a, a lot of cases of the infectious disease in question, whether it's COVID, flu, or something else. Same goes with gun violence. So we need tools that are going to be hyper-focused from the law enforcement standpoint and a process of equitable and fair law enforcement, uh, more accountability. So that's something we've been working on in Baltimore, but it is relevant in virtually any city um, you can think of that has a gun violence problem, which sadly is most of our cities. When you do talk with uh, political leaders, gun control advocates, the general public, medical leaders, and many other institutions and uh, individuals on this topic. What kind of response do you get from these different groups, and in particular, the law enforcement groups that you mentioned? We've found uh, many very willing partners. The commonality between law enforcement and public health is, again, we're very goal-oriented. We have a problem to solve, and I think law enforcement uh, really acknowledges that they alone cannot solve this problem. Um, and you'll hear that from law enforcement leaders or even frontline officers, that we rely very heavily upon law enforcement and criminal justice in part because other systems have failed. We have a failed mental health system. We have a failed public education system. We have a failed housing system. And we have a failed gun policy system. All of those problems then create the conditions that we apply police and prisons to address, right? So the people on the front lines of law enforcement officers recognize that, yes, they, they have jobs to do that's very specific to, um, uh, most importantly, controlling violence and keeping people safe. But they really need help for the very specific individuals. Um, and, and really, the most effective community gun violence prevention programs that we see tend to be collaborations between law enforcement community groups, people who can gain trust of the highest risk individuals and try to, A, in the most immediate sense, uh, resolve conflicts without using a gun, but then really move them into safer situations with uh, sometimes they need mental health care, substance abuse treatment, they are housing and food insecure. People who are involved in gun violence 
honestly, they would rather not be doing that in most cases. Um, they've grown up in, in lives of trauma and deprivation. So yes, we need laws and law enforcement to address it, but we also need systems that help people that our systems have failed. For a time, I uh, led Baltimore's Homicide Review Commission, which is a very enlightening enterprise where you look very, very deeply at the cases of each homicide, the victims, the perpetrators. And what we learned by doing that is, uh, boy, um, just to give you an example, in one year where uh, we weren't able to look at all the cases, but I think we looked at about 60 to 70 cases. And out of all those cases of all the victims and all of the offenders involved, only one graduated high school, one. This is a problem, not just a law enforcement or criminal justice problem, which is always what we turn to. If you read your local newspaper and they're talking about gun violence, they're usually talking to cops. But when you look at the cases, uh, many of them are were many grades behind. They didn't get the help they need. Uh, their families had a variety of crises that were not addressed. So what this type of process does, and we do this in conjunction with law enforcement and uh, social service providers to understand what is going on, what is the nature of the problem, how can we solve it, not only with law enforcement and prisons, but with other better system responses to the problems that generate gun violence. We may have a tendency in this country sometimes to think about these issues very narrowly, you know, like gun control or you know, address mental health issues or background mm-hmm. checks. But you're saying that's the wrong way to think about it. This is really a bigger issue that requires an all-encompassing approach that includes public health as a very high priority. Yes. When you look at almost any public health problem, there's never one single thing that uh, really drives that public health problem. It's usually a multi- multiple factors working at different levels, societal, community, and individual. Um, and, and in our, our sort of what we refer to as social networks, our family and friends networks. So, um, yes, when you tackle a problem like gun violence, rarely are you going to be successful just looking at one factor. Having said that, I, I want to just be also clear that uh, the United States is very unique in not a good way. Our homicide rates are roughly eight times higher than the average high-income Western democracy. And our gun homicide rates are over 25 times higher. Now, are we just a more violent culture and society within the United States versus these other nations? Maybe a little bit. If you look at our non-gun homicide rates, we're somewhat higher. But if you look at almost any metric of violent crime, of bullying in schools, of mental health problems, of a whole range of things that are related to violence, and you compare the United States with other countries, we're pretty darn average when, when you look at it. And what is unique is uh, we have wide availability and accessibility of firearms. And uh, our studies have, have shown that when you have comprehensive systems that, of course, allow people who are are legal to have guns to possess them, but also have a reasonable regulatory system to minimize their harm, to prevent risky users from access. You have far lower rates of both homicide and suicide. And and in some of the the measure, the policy we, we focus on a great deal is licensing people who purchase and acquire handguns. Remarkably, we find that this has a pretty substantial protective effect against homicides, suicides, shootings of law enforcement officers, 
officers shooting civilians, mass shootings, diversions of guns for criminal use, because gun availability does influence behavior and the outcome. So it is a really key dimension to solving this problem is addressing the real weaknesses and vulnerabilities in our gun policies. You've mentioned that you've had some good discussions with community leaders and that there's been a receptivity to your message. I'm wondering if there are a couple examples of where your message was really taken to heart and you saw real change uh, either at the local or even federal level or you know where people said we can do some things a little bit differently to address this. Well, uh, that's a good question and also a little bit hard question because I'm reflecting over a very long career um, and, and there's been so much change over that, that span of time. I'll tell us a story that, that has some positives and some challenges, to be honest, because again, this is a really hard problem. Much earlier in my career, when again, Baltimore is uh, struggling with high rates of gun violence. And at that time, Martin O'Malley was the mayor and um, he had a health commissioner who was trained in our school and thought about gun violence as a public health problem. And so Martin O'Malley turned to uh, health commissioner Bielinson and said, Hey, I need you to help me solve this problem. And together, working with uh, Dr. Bielinson, we identified a program that was public health in its orientation that was going on in Chicago. It's called Ceasefire. Now is known as Cure Violence, but it involved people who had prior histories of involvement in, in violence and, and crime, but who had turned their lives around and that they were critical to reaching the highest risk individuals and trying to convince them that there are better ways to address their conflicts and grievances rather than using a gun. So we, I was part of a team that helped convince the mayor to go and, and try this program. At that time, it was pretty controversial. This was about 15 years ago now. Now it is a more common thing you'll see in many cities. But at that time, it was uh, very few cities were doing this. And uh, not surprisingly, there was a lot of skepticism, to say the least, to say, oh, you, you're going to have criminals solve the problem because we label people based upon uh, what they may have done years ago. And the early returns were, were quite impressive uh, in the evaluation that we led and our data uh, kept the program going. But this this is a type of intervention uh, with a group of individuals that sooner or later, because they live in um, challenging conditions, they will make mistakes and they, they will uh, that will get in the newspaper. They'll they'll commit some crime, for example. So our our research and my voice, you know, needed to be part of that discussion to say, look. These people are lifesavers. The, the, this is part of your community safety system that we need to invest in to improve and, and recognize that, again, that's nothing is perfect. So we were able to document some really great success, allow the program to grow and thrive. Now, over the years, there have been more challenges. We're not seeing as good effects in recent years, and our data are showing that. And we're very, I'm very much engaged with the program with this uh, mayor's office to try to develop stronger community responses that aren't exclusively relying upon um, what we call violence interruption, but also provide more tangible help and assistance to move these high-risk individuals 
to change their lives rather than every single day try to just keep them from shooting somebody. Do you think that as a country we can get to a better place? We can forge a consensus and maybe change how we do some things? Well, I, I'm I'm not naive to uh, to not think that there are great challenges to that. We're we're living in, in a very divisive period right now, and it strains our capacity to solve common problems. and And that's not unique to gun violence. We can think about immigration, climate change. There's so many different things that are pressing problems that we're having difficulty solving because. Uh, we're more in a adversarial kind of position rather than uh, let's solve problems together. But I think when it comes to something like gun violence uh, that is so immediate uh, and, and has such enormous social and health and economic cost, that that is such an immediate crisis that it does bring people together to try to come together to solve the problems. I remain hopeful, but also recognize that uh, that there clearly are challenges that lie ahead. I think public health can be something that helps bring us more together as opposed to at odds with one another in order to solve the problem. Well, you make a compelling case and your voice is so critical to this. So thank you for what you're doing. It's God's work. And I just want to thank you for spending some time with me. It was a very important conversation. And I appreciate it. Thanks, Monty. Thank you. Thank you.